I say this every once in a while as encouragement. When I um, first started practicing, actually for years into practice, if I had to say anything in front of anybody, I was sick for weeks. And I mean weeks. And um, this was impossible. Without, no matter how much preparation. And I would bring scores of sheets, and follow everything through to the letter. Laura remembers this. And now I can sit here without any of it. And the reason that I say that is because whatever you think is a barrier to your liberation, it's only for now. It's just now. It all changes. So I want to, um, I'm supposed to talk about India. I went to India recently. But I want to um, talk about, um, I've been thinking about it actually. Like what do I talk about? And how is it relevant to what we're doing here? And I'll just give you some background on why I was there. There was a, um, for those of you who aren't familiar, in 1956, there was a, um, a man by the name of B.R.M. Bedkar, who was one of the major writers, the primary writer of the Indian Constitution and many other things. He um, converted, he was, a, he was what's called an untouchable or a Dalit. So, um, the treatment of the Dalits then and still was pretty awful. And he worked tirelessly throughout his life. He was a rare person in that a progressive Hindu upper caste man paid his way to Columbia and he got an education and so he took all that back. Uh, also, he was at Cambridge and other universities. He ended up with a string of degrees and he spent his life trying to work for representation of the untouchables in the political system, the burgeoning political system of India when, the, um, when independence was beginning to happen. And it didn't work out. Uh, actually, one of the main blockers of it was Gandhi himself. So it didn't... Um, there was no significant representation for untouchables, and no significant changes in their lives. At that time, there has been since. So seven weeks before his death, he converted to Buddhism, and he turned around and he converted 500,000 untouchables to Buddhism. And at that moment, you're released from the Hindu caste system if you no longer take it on, if you choose to leave it. So that's grown over the years since Ambedkar, and um, now it's estimated, although the government estimates much less, the, the mo movement itself estimates about 40 million uh, untouchables who are now Buddhists in India. And so I was there for the 60th anniversary of this, which uh, brought together 2 million people. And within that, it sounds like a lot, but actually in India, a pilgrimage of 2 million people is kind of normal. Um, but, uh, but there were two million people and, uh, and not only that, there was a conference of engaged Buddhists from around the world that were together there as well. 
And the Conference of Engaged Buddhists was, was fascinating. It was great, and it was, it was great to be with people who are thinking about this in that way around the world. But what was more interesting to me, because I was one of the people who, who were facilitating a group each afternoon of people who were both engaged Buddhists from around the world and also um, untouchables who have been, who are in leadership roles. And um, a few things struck me uh, in, dis in, in, I guess, contradistinction to Buddhism in this country. And that is, first of all, it is very much uh, the experience there. I was at a place called Nagaloka, which is a small college that works with uh, Dalit youth and brings them in, and usually they're illiterate, um, in their own spoken language and any other. By the time they're finished with three or four years there, they read and write in their language in Hindi and Pali and in English. And then they go back to their community and they do a number of things. They start clinics, they, um, they start education programs, they teach Buddhism. And um, what is so interesting about Buddhism in this environment is that it's a social movement. It's a social movement in a way that we don't really experience here. Um, the movement we experience here is a kind of a personal movement. I mean, there's some, there's some shifts that are beginning to happen around that, but for the most part, people enter, um, just think about the entry difference, right? There, here, you start, you decide you want to start sitting, you go to a, you go to a Dharma center of some sort, you kind of test it out, and then maybe at some point, maybe I don't become a Buddhist, maybe I do, you know, those, that's all worked out at a very, in a very individual way. There, you usually convert because you're in a particular social location and you convert in mass with 100 or 200 other people. And so, one thing that was interesting to me was, um, very much they're practicing Buddhists. When we would have conversations, they were looking at grasping self. Um, there was a real sense of understanding emotionality and... Because, and the reason I say this is some people critique the embed Karate Buddhist movement as not being Buddhist because it has this social aspect to it. And um, that's interesting in and of itself that... Uh, there is a, that somehow Buddhism shouldn't have uh, a social face or a social concern in some way. That that's actually a critique out there. And it's especially odd when you consider that the whole thing that brought the Buddha to do this in the first place was how do I end suffering? How do I address sickness, old age, and death? How do I understand what's at the source of suffering itself, for everyone. And so, um, certainly there is a deep personal practice that's going on. Um, at the same time, what's very much understood is that we're always wrestling with the aspects of our self that are being manipulated by the society at large. 
that it's not simply I'm um, over here with my own personal psychological history and I'm just looking at that in some sort of um, temporal tunnel, like it's happened in some isolated line independent of everyone else. That my idea of self or my idea of separation is somehow distinct from everybody else's idea of self and separation. And there's some truth to that. We're, we're clearly individual in some ways. But in this context, there was a real clarity that I'm also looking at um, how, that, how I am internalizing a sense of self that's being manipulated everywhere. I'll give you an example, and we see the corollaries to this here. We're in a, we're at a pilgrimage site with 200 Dalits, and everybody you see, except me and a few other European descended people who were there, everyone you see is dark-skinned. But if you look at all the billboards around, everyone, glowing bright, all the advertisements, they were all, they, I don't know if you're, they, everyone looked Iranian. You know, they didn't even, they didn't look like anybody there. They looked like they were from Southern Europe. And um, they were very much, the people there were laughing, you know, they're very much aware, like, this is not actually who lives here, except for a very small percentage of people. And so, um, what was a beautiful thing to witness is to be with the young people who were, and, and painful, beautiful and painful at the same time, because we watched film after film after film of Dalits, and again, this is going to sound very familiar, of Dalits just being beaten in the street, um, harassed, sometimes because they wore clothes that were too nice for their station, or they celebrated with a food that was too fancy, or they drank out of a common water place that they shouldn't have drank out of, or it goes on and on and on. In the worst cases, they walked in the daylight and their shadow touched someone else. So, for young people to come in and have a crushed body and a, um, and a total lack of self-worth. And, and in many of these videos, watching them, seeing the resignation in the people who the vi um, upon which the violence was being inflicted, just like, this is what's supposed to happen. And to see them come in and you can feel that in their body and then be with the ones four and five years later where that's just gone. And person after person after person after person would say, now I can speak. Before I couldn't speak to anybody that, was, um, that wasn't an untouchable because I was terrified to even have a voice. And now I can speak to anyone. Now I can stand up and speak to anyone. And I can have confidence in that. It, um, it points to the revolutionary power of the practice itself. That actually, we're not just changing on a, in a personal way. If we look deeply into the way the self is constructed, not just in our own histories, but uh, 
but as social constructions, we are changing our capacity for being with each other in ways that we can't even imagine. And this begins to change everything. And, um, and so there was that piece of what was, I don't have a clock. Could I have a clock? There was that piece. But there was also, um, you know, there's 40 million potentially of these folks. And there aren't very many people to teach them Buddhism. Thank you. They know enough about Buddhism that they want to convert to it, but then they want to study it, and there just aren't people in the communities to teach. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of the monks that are in the area, in Sri Lanka and Thailand and so on, they're happy where they are, so they don't really come into the Dali communities and do that work, unfortunately. And um, Laura and I were talking about this, and Laura's talked about it a lot in the past, uh, the preciousness of actually just hearing the Dharma. We're in this world overrun with information. If we want a Dharma talk, we go to YouTube and get 5,000 of them. And then we start comparing, and that one's not that good, and this person's great, and da da da, and there's all this stuff. I don't want to go listen to that teacher. And they can't get one person to come to a village to teach something they're dying to learn because nobody wants to be in a Dalit village. It's a shanty town. And um, what is that mirror back to us? What is that mirror back to us and um, our relationship to the teachings, my relationship to the teaching? You know, do I really wake up every day? Recognizing, I try to, recognizing the preciousness of having found something that completely transformed my life. And so there's that piece. And then the other piece, and this is something, I mean, I would love to hear what people think on all of this. But the other piece that really strikes me too is the difference in Dharma as community rather than Dharma as personal practice. Dharma as community practice. And certainly Zen, this is Zen's history. But it's within, you know, it's within a monastery. And it's also within a culture, historically, that this was the given, the norm for antiquity all over the world, but certainly in, um, certainly in Japan where our, and China where this lineage came from. These were what's called high-context cultures, you know, cultures where everybody were, were deeply interconnected, and the rules of a village and the rules of a culture were known, and everybody relied on each other, and so on. Now we rely on a service economy, not on each other. Um, just run through your head the last time you asked your neighbor for something that you really needed. So, um, you know, there's, um, we don't live in that kind of a culture. So being anymore, and um, being in a place where the Dharma was so, Buddhist practice was so deeply understood as a community event 
and, in a, and a community transformation. Not just um, in the way we talk about it, which certainly we talk about it this way, um, but enacted every minute of the day. I mean, there was no time that that wasn't the case. And, you know, there were some, there were some fun things to it. I, I, had, I have a history, um, I have a history going back and forth to the Zapatista movement in Mexico and some other Latin American um, indigenous political movements when I was younger. And um, this had that flavor because when you, were in the, when you were in their space, there's a saying that they say to each other, Jaibim. Beam is uh, the shortened nickname for Bim Rao Ambedkar. So it's Ambedkar's name. And Jai is victory. So hello was victory to Ambedkar. And so there was this real sense of um, we are a community that is working together to change the circumstances of the world. For the Dalits first, but for everyone. And so, um, again, what came up for me looking at this is the Bodhisattva vow, a community of um, people committed, and it's varying levels, of course, but a community of people committed to the transformation of the world, to the actual, to the really the end of suffering. Like not taking that as some sort of poetic device so we stay on the path, but, um, which is nothing wrong with that, but, um, but to take it seriously to really take seriously what it would look like. What does it mean to end suffering for ourselves and everyone? What does it mean to bring the Dharma to what's happening economically in this country, what's happening racially in this country, what's happening to the community fabric in this country? Um, what's happening with the number of hours everyone has to work just to live? These are... Um, this is huge. These, are, these, are, these have huge social and personal implications. They're all intertwined. And what does it mean to... Um, we were talking the other night. I can't remember where it was. Some, some talk here, some conversation here. And uh, the subway came up. And uh, this is a koan class. subway came up and the, and, the, and the passing back and forth of each other as if we're not there. I have my thing, I'm doing my thing, and everybody else's eh, shadows. And the, um, the slight dehumanization that has become so easy, that has just become so easy. What would it be to... Um, return to community in that way, to really see each other through the eyes of community. Our civil discourse is just breaking down in this country. I mean, it's just in, in ways that are deeply disturbing. And, um, and potentially dangerous. 
if the danger is not already here? What would it be to bring um, Dharma to community and community to Dharma in that way? You know, the Buddha, he talked mostly about the Sangha itself. So, for example, when the Buddha said things like, um, caste has no bearing on awakening. We don't need to pay attention to people's station in life. It doesn't get in the way of their awakening. He didn't say overthrow caste. He did not say overthrow caste. It's not actually in, although people like to say the Buddha said that. He did not say that. (laughs) It's nowhere in the suttas. When the Buddha said that gender and sex doesn't get in the way, he didn't necessarily challenge patriarchy. He just said it didn't get in the way. So the question we have as Buddhists in the world is the rules of Sangha, which are the rules of interrogating self and identity, interrogating who we are, how we're attached to who we are, and recognizing that in that interrogation and through that interrogation, what Dogen said, to study the self is to forget the self. We don't jump over the study of the self. The forgetting of the self happens through the studying of the self. So within the Dharma community, to actually... um, we have the understanding that we are studying all aspects of self in order to recognize their emptiness, that there isn't an essence there, and that they can, we can be freed from what we think we essentially are. That that's an aspect of Sangha. And um, recognizing that none of those things, none of them are a barrier to the human's capacity to be liberated. None. So that's an understanding within the Sangha. The question for us then is, do we want to work for a world where that's an understanding in the world? (coughs) Is it enough to say, okay, that's an understanding here? Or do we want to work for a world where we are released from these identities that can cause so much suffering and pain? And here's the thing that I thought was interesting about the Ambedkar Buddhists is that doesn't mean we don't affirm them. We can affirm them. We can affirm our place in the world. They affirm their place as Dalits. They just refuse to have it mean something that has to do with domination and violence and violence against them. Some do, some don't. Some give it up. Um, and change their names and drop out of the system because the name is how you know. The surname is how you know someone's cast. That, to me, is, I think, one of the major questions for American Buddhism in our time. Is the commitments of the Sangha the, vow, the, the commitment to awakening in the Sangha. Do we want to work for this in the world? And do we understand deeply that these two things cannot be separated? The Bodhisattva vow is 
not just, okay, I'm working for the benefit of the world, but that my awakening is intimately tied to everybody's awakening. My liberation is intimately tied to everyone's liberation. I am not liberated without everyone's liberation. It does not happen. Because I am contextualized in a community. If there is no separate self, then that means anything that I am at any given point is dependently co-arising as whatever is happening, which means the entire community. And if the entire community is not liberated from suffering, I am not liberating from, liberated from suffering. That is just a fact, really. The only way that that's not the case is if you believe in a separate self, which is going to make you miserable. So, once separation falls away, then the realization is, I am my community. I am the world. At least everything, you know, one thing that um, Reb said one time, Reb Anderson, who's a teacher on the West Coast, he said, right now, you all are more me than, I, than any idea of me is. And that's actually factually true. You're what's arising in my perception. The idea of who I am is just this cloud. It means nothing. So I guess I think um, maybe what I've taken from there is, a, is another model of what this can look like. Another model of a community that is, um, you know, we talk about, <laughs> we talk about the secular space. You know, we have, a, we have a language in this country that's fascinating to me because the way it's framed is there's all these religions, and whether you consider Buddhism a religion or not is up to you. There's all these religions. And then there's the secular space, which is neutral, right? Which is so not neutral. There's nothing neutral about it. You know? It's consumer capitalist driven. It's absolutely patriarchal. In this country, it is very much white supremacist, whether we like that word or not. Um, it is, it's not neutral. So, and, and not only that, more than anything, I think the secular space, uh, it's also very material reductionist, which we consider neutral science. You know, that spirit is not a part of the earth, that it's just hard ground that we can mine for whatever we want. And there's no life force there we need to concern ourselves with. This is philosophical, it's a, that is a religious position. That is not just a piece of fact. That is a position. And it's a position that allows us to have a particular relationship to life. I'm alive, the rest of life is dead, to varying degrees. Animals are a little bit alive, you know, but not quite as alive as I am. You know, so, and certainly rocks are dead. We can do whatever we want to rocks. But um, 
this allows for a certain way of being morally in the world. That viewpoint allows a certain way of being in the world that has moral consequences. And um, we're kind of in a little bit of a wrestling match right now because global warming has raised some flags of how are we going to, um, how are we going to engage? How are we going to understand the world? How are we going to understand our dependently co-risen relationship with it? Are we just dependently co-risen in terms of like, I have some nitrogen and they have some, and there's some nitrogen in rocks? Or, or are we going to reclaim what has been actually the norm for all of humanity for long before our current position, which is that the whole thing is alive? And we're alive with it. And we're deeply interconnected with it. And there's no one and there's no thing that is outside of that. Are we going to be that again? Are we going to look at the ways that we cut ourselves off from feeling the living force of existence itself? Even the metal of the subway train. So... We can start with our community. There's a, um, I'll end with this. Um, another movement that happened in Sri Lanka over the last 50, 60 years was something called the um, Sarvodaya Shramadana movement, which is a village-based movement, Buddhist movement that was um, about working to take care of a village and creating community through the work. And their um, their tagline, I was talking to Danielle about this on Friday, yesterday, um, is we build the road and the road builds us. And this is, to me, I love this, because this is Zen, 100%. I mean, Zen is all about work practice, and we put forward, like, we do these things together, and by doing these things together, our very um, being is transformed. By being mindful of the dishes together, by taking into account the person next to me, by noticing where my hands are, by understanding my relationship to everyone else, the kinhin line where we pay attention to our space with each other, service together. We build all of these things and they build us. We build the community and the community builds us. We think we're coming in and sitting on this cushion alone, but nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. We're coming in and we're sitting on this cushion together. And in sitting on this cushion together, we deeply support each other's transformation. The liberation that's happening for the person next to you is supporting your liberation and the other way around. That's all happening live. <laughs> Not just theoretically. So with that, I'd love to hear any thoughts that bubbled up. When are we supposed to end, Terrence? Um, I think much like 50th of the week, so it hit noon usually. Okay. Good. Okay. Please. Will you say your name? Uh, Vicky. Vicky. Um, 
felt so much despair and horror at, it just keep, doesn't seem to stop, um, at being an American and being a woman and being white and being, uh, you know, a New Yorker. Um, and I think, you know, one of the first rules when you are a New Yorker is you never look at anybody in the face. <laughs> But I really felt, you know, wanting to connect with other people because everything was going on and not knowing how to deal with it. And I found the most amazing thing that, especially in the past month or two, that I've made a real effort every day, whether I'm in the subway or walking down the street or in the hallway at work, of looking at other people you know, right in the face and, you know, smiling or saying hi. And I can't tell you. I've had the most amazing conversations with like a soldier and doing conversation, and cops and my neighbors and people at the gym and people in the bathroom at work. And, you know, I'm not a super special person and I'm shy, but it has made me so hopeful about, you know, all of us because everybody really wants to talk right now. And it doesn't matter who we are and how different we are. I just really encourage everybody to try it because everybody wants to talk to each other, especially right now, really wants to talk to each other. Yeah. Thank you. So there's, um, this is a mix of two frameworks, okay. In some, even though Buddhism talks about no self and, and everything is empty of essence, and, and when we look, that seems to be true. We can't actually find a center to these notions of who we are. We can't find them. And at the same time, Identities can be very powerful things that knit together communities so that they can have a voice. You know, the two, two, and a very simple example is, I can think of a hundred, but to bring forward the identity of being a woman together is necessary against the whole history of patriarchy squashing that voice. Now, one can hold both, that I'm going to affirm this position in the world. I'm viewed this way. This is my embodiment. I'm going to affirm it. I hope we all affirm ourselves and our embodiment in the way we are. And this is conditioned. I believe I'm who I am because I grew into a world that told me who I was. And has certain words about who I am, and has a, and and understands me in in um, contrast to other people. So all of that stuff is completely conditioned. And if we could have easily all been conditioned a totally different way with a whole completely different set of understandings of how our bodies are designated and understood. And in fact, if you go to any go to India, the way people are split up is totally different. 
I mean, the man-woman man thing seems to be pretty solid across the world. But all the other stuff, pretty different. But um, so in that way, clearly conditioned. So to hold both gives us um, freedom and voice. We need the freedom. We need to know that we're not reducible to what people tell us we are. We need to know that. But at the same time, we may need to band together in a real world around an identity and affirm it for things to be heard. So, is that... Question. Well, where Buddhism goes is human suffering, so that's the group. Um, but uh, you know, we're updating Buddhism. You know, we're updating it, and and this is known. I mean, Buddhism has been updated hundreds of times. Um, it's been made relevant hundreds of times, and and I think if there is a so when you ask what does Buddhism have to say about. I think Buddhism focuses very heavily on the no-self side and says the human suffering is just constant, we're all suffering. But it doesn't necessarily, it, it, it hasn't necessarily done the detail work historically of what you're pointing to, which is there are, um, there are identities that result in a deeply shared suffering that we can that we can join together in. It'd be interesting to understand how that, you know, we're seeing that, right? People are separating out into Buddhist groups to, to, to explore that shared suffering together, to make sense of it. So we have POC groups, and we have undoing patriarchy groups, and we have these things. Um, so that the lens toward a particularity of that suffering can be honed in on. We can understand it in spaces that we feel um, safe to speak because we may not always feel safe to speak in mixed groups with everybody. Hopefully one day we will be, because hopefully one day we'll be able to actually hear each other's suffering and not take it defensively and personally. But to understand that actually when somebody's speaking from a particular social location about their suffering, from a particular identity about their suffering, that is shared human suffering. That is shared human suffering. 
Just because I don't have an experience of that particular suffering, it's still shared human suffering. It's still the same thing at the, at the base level. And I need to take it in as, in two ways, I think in two ways. One, in a very real way that I don't understand what it's like to experience that if it's not my embodiment or experience or identity. And because it comes out of a human violence and a human suffering, I will open to it as one of the variations, one of the outgrowths of general human suffering. So I, I would, you know, this goes, in, in terms of Buddhists, this goes back to the one and the many discussion. We have to know that everything's coming out of the one, but the one never cancels out the many. Ever. The many are the way the one is known. That's how the one is known. And the two truths, the absolute truth, is known through the relative. It's known through the many. We love, it's just, it, it feels so orderly to just take the one and smash the many and say, okay, now we know, we're done. I don't have to worry about any of this messy, gritty, dirty work anymore. But um, does that go anywhere near? You sure? Okay. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Love. I can't you know, if love weren't at the base of this, this, this wouldn't work. <laughs> we, wouldn't, we wouldn't wake up, we wouldn't transform, we wouldn't have trust in the world, there wouldn't be faith. You know, this, if, the, if, there wasn't, um, if there wasn't at the bottom um, a deep sense of our connectedness that makes us whole, it actually makes us whole. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little bit more, Greg, about in terms of practicing as a community and practice as Buddhists, as opposed to this um, kind of taking refuge in love. I think that um, my experience is that I was just talking to somebody about this this morning. My experience is, and I'll say more about this after I say the sentence, but my experience is nothing. We cannot be liberated from anything fully except through love. So we can do all the discernment work that we need to do and there needs to be disciplined. You know, it, this is not a, this isn't a sweet, you know, if you haven't noticed, Zen is not like a very comfortable, sweet process. It's kind of hard. Um, but, um, so, the, so the discipline of discernment, and okay, that is, 
that is a sense of self that is causing me to be miserable in grosser, subtle ways. It gets more and more subtle. But as that falls away, what emerges is um, the sense in the way we're connected. Because the second, once separation falls away, connection is what's there. Um, but we cannot beat our confusion out of the picture. We can't say, like, ah, that's causing me suffering, and beat it away. Because the beating is the self trying to become more powerful by beating away the parts that are in the way. So the relaxing back into letting... Um, Relaxing back into seeing. Relaxing back into seeing very clearly what's causing us pain and then bringing compassion and love to it is when it can say, okay, I'm done. I actually don't need to be here anymore. I'm not helping you out. And I get to go retire. I always treat them as they're going on retirement. They did their job. It was really helpful. You know, I mean, let's face it, it was really helpful. All these ego structures protect us in childhood and in our lives. They are not crazy. They are super sane. They're just outdated. Yeah. So, so, thank you very much. Appreciate that you were here. You know, and now I need to kind of get out of the little tunnel that I've been stuck in. So, so in that sense, I think there, the, we, can only, we can only release through love. I mean, we have to love every, have to, it's terrible. It is really helpful to love every part of ourselves. It's really helpful. So, yeah? Dexter. No, I think, you, I think you pointed out the difference beautifully. Uh, this is practice for that, first of all. You know, this is where we, this is the boot camp. That's the work. You know. the, um, but I think what you pointed out is really important, which is um, here after a certain point of practice, we expect something of each other, which is I expect you to look your, at you. 
I expect you to look at you. If you're coming here as a Buddhist practitioner, as a Zen practitioner, the, um, the expectation is that we're all looking at our own conditioning. And that creates a very different conversation between two people, very, which I'm sure you've noticed. Very different conversation. When we're out in the world practicing, one thing we have to give up is that expectation. Because they're not, they're not necessarily. And if we go out and say, well, you should really be looking at yourself, you know, it's not going to work. <laughs> it just does not work. So, um, so it actually increases the opportunity for us to look this way. Because we don't get to, that's all, that's just doing what it's doing. It's doing what it's doing. And um, in terms of skillfulness, I think what has the biggest effect in the world is when you're deeply doing the work with people who aren't without asking them to do it. And um, if, unless they've asked, they want to do it, that's different. But if they're just a regular person, they, they're not interested, then they're not interested. But if you're doing it on your side, it will be seen. You may not know how it's seen. It may not be clear to you it's seen. But it will be seen. That I have total faith in. So, out there, double down and do your work. Completely. And people will notice. And someday someone will walk up and go, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on that you're not bothered? That you're happy? That get there? Okay. Main. I mean, on the flip side of that, I would actually say that if we can really stay in touch with, the, with our child, all of, us have ex all of us have been children, and so all of us have experienced powerlessness. So, in one way or another. We do a lot of work to forget that. We do a tremendous amount. We expend an incredible amount of effort trying to stay away from that feeling. And that feeling is actually a gateway to everyone else. To everyone else in the world. That is a gateway. Is our own powerlessness. Ultimate powerlessness. I'm not saying we're not, we don't have power in, to change the world. I think we do. We have tremendous power to change the world. But our ultimate powerlessness is that we can't control the outcomes of, of anything, really. We cannot control outcomes. 
we can affect circumstances, but we can't control outcomes. Yes? My name is Dan. Um, following up off of that, how does one keep oneself from letting that powerlessness become a source of shame or an isolating factor that removes them from connecting with others? The, the thing that thinks the powerlessness is shame is ego, right? Because ego wants to be powerful. So it wants to be able to control everything. Um, the not so fun response, but probably the most um, effective one, is to just sit with feeling powerlessness and shame. You just have to feel it all the way to the bottom until you see shame for what it is, which is just this endless self-hatred and self-loathing. And in a way, here's the, here's the grand irony of it all, right? Those things that are afraid to die by the weight of shame or whatever, actually need to die. This fight against having certain aspects of who we are die off, those are the things that need to die off. We don't trust that at first. We fight full throttle to keep that from happening. But eventually, the realization is, oh, actually, the fight is a dream. The entire fight is a dream. That if I just let the fighter go, the fight goes with it. Danielle. <laughs> what this conversation and what you're sharing is making me think of is um, my own like unpacking of privilege. And just the other day I was like entering into a space and thinking, remember, there's a time when I entered into a space like this and was so othering. Mm-hmm. Because I'm light skinned, or because um, I'm educated, or because I got whatever, you know, and so I guess my question is kind of like once that dream is gone, like once one level of dream is gone, right? Like, how do you then grapple with? Yeah, totally makes sense. Do you notice at the moment you're not feeling the love for someone that you're not feeling it?
feel that way. Okay. I don't know where, like, but like, I know with some people I have to cultivate that more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with other people. Mm-hmm. So do you know, at the times you're not feeling the love for someone, do you notice that you're not feeling it? Okay. So at those moments, see, look at what's in the way of loving. Look to see what idea, what idea of you, what idea of them, what idea generally, what idea of justice, whatever it is. That. So it's frustration with the world that you can't accept this, that you can't love this particular person. Lack of control over what those people can do. So fear. Fear usually is what's in the... You know, this is a, a little bit, but not really. This is a little bit of an over-reduction, but not really. There are really two frames in the world. There's love and there's fear. That's it. That bottom, those are the two frames. We're either afraid and we're coming from separation. Actually, the coming from separation is the fear, and the fear creates the coming from separation. There's fear frame, and there's love connection frame. That's that. <laughs> you know? So it's... Um, to, um, to notice, okay, right now I'm afraid of this person. Two things are going on, right? One is I'm afraid of this person, and the other thing is because I'm afraid, I'm not able to see, take in all the ways that person has been conditioned and is out of control of their conditioning. Doesn't mean we approve of it. Just needs we recognize it. That I can love that being as a conditioned being also. That is an outgrowth of their conditioning. Doesn't mean I want them to be running things or whatever, but, um, but I can hold them as a human being. But I think the most important thing is to go, is to, that's very kind of here, the most important thing is to go really to the root of what is saying no. Not this one. And to be with that. Lovingly with that. Because if you can't love them right now, maybe you can love the fear that keeps you from loving them. And that's just as good. Yeah. Yeah. All that, all of it can be real, right? What's also real is that they're a conditioned being. I don't believe anybody makes a decision at a point in their life and says, I am just going to be a vindictive, oppressive, domineering human being for the rest of my life. I don't think anybody makes that choice. You know? So, 
but we treat them as if they did make that choice. We treat them as if at some point, one point in their life, they decided to just be an asshole forever. <laughs> you know, and, and they didn't. So, so that has to be held as a part of everything. Not to negate, it's a, not making the argument that you negate critically engaging violence and power and all of that. Absolutely not. But you include in that as much of the truth as you can. And the truth is everybody's been conditioned. And they're aware of it to greater or lesser degrees. And some are totally unaware of it. In fact, probably most are really totally unaware of their conditioning. And they're just acting from blindness. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there, was, there was a situation in, uh, that happened a little while ago where somebody was screaming at me, and um, it was like a while ago now, but they were yelling at me, and I said, I would um, call me back when you stop yelling. I'm not, I, I'm not here for you to yell at. I'm not interested. I'm certainly not going to just let people beat up on me for fun because they're in a mood. <laughs> you know, that is not the world we need to live in. But we can love that person completely while we're saying, no, because we love us, ourselves completely. That's from, that is from where we can love them completely and say no, is because we love ourselves completely, and so I'm not going to let you do that to me. So. John, it's five after, so it has to be like a... Actually, I'm going to have to say no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so we're just going to go to, to Soji? Yeah, okay. All right. I have a stick now. May our intentions equally... Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.